Arlington police say protests Monday remain generally peaceful, but say there were, quote, several agitators. Send me another unit, please. Send me another unit. A movement, I'm telling you, they're not going to stop. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All right, welcome back to Into the Fray. So we left off talking about COVID, masks, all of the misinformation that keeps turning out to be accurate, actually. Today we're getting into the vaccine itself. There is massive political pressure to vaccinate everyone. The COVID vaccines are being administered to anyone willing to roll up their sleeves. It's happening at bars, at fire stations, at public events, even door-to-door now. All without consideration for medical history or any other risk factors. Anytime there's this level of political pressure, we should be wary. I'll start with the creator of the mRNA technology the vaccine uses, Dr. Robert Malone. From LifeSite News, July 5th, 2021. Information about the inventor of the mRNA technology used in certain COVID-19 vaccines was removed from the online encyclopedia site Wikipedia after he publicly warned against giving the experimental gene therapy vaccines to young people and that there was insufficient information about the injections to give informed consent. Dr. Robert Malone, MD, MS, discovered RNA transfection and, while he was at the Salk Institute in San Diego in 1988, invented mRNA vaccines. His research was continued the next year at Vicol, and between 1988 and 1989, Malone wrote the patent disclosures for mRNA vaccines. On June 10, 2021, Dr. Malone joined biologist Brett Weinstein, PhD, on the Dark Horse podcast where Malone raised numerous safety concerns about the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines, both of which use mRNA technology. He warned about future autoimmune issues caused by the spike proteins within the mRNA injections. Malone also stated that the Food and Drug Administration was aware that the spike proteins were biologically active and could travel from the injection site and cause adverse events, and that the spike protein, if biologically active, is very dangerous. YouTube swiftly moved to censor clips from this three-hour podcast interview. Might I suggest listening to that episode? It's the Dark Horse Podcast, hosted by Brett Weinstein, and the episode is called How to Save the World in Three Easy Steps. Back to the article. Then, appearing on Fox News' Tucker Carlson Tonight some days later, Dr. Malone issued further warnings about the vaccines, the content of which is contrary to the mainstream media's promotion of the injections. The mRNA inventor declared that there was still insufficient data for anyone to make an informed decision about receiving the vaccines. Malone also warned against the injections being given to young people. I have a bias that the benefits probably don't outweigh the risks in that cohort, but unfortunately the risk-benefit analysis is not being done. Carlson described Malone as being perhaps the single most qualified person on planet Earth to discuss this subject, given his status as the inventor of the technology behind the injections now being rolled out, and in some cases, mandated, to people across the globe. However, Malone was not targeted merely by YouTube, 
just days after the Dark Horse podcast was released, the Wikipedia entry for RNA vaccine was changed, removing him and his role from the article, and thus potentially removing the weight that his warnings about the technology might convey. Why is this information so critical? Well, let's start with this. Biden's door-to-door pushers are already out in cities across the country. These aren't evangelists here to inform you about the benefits and risks and provide resources so that you can get the vaccine if you want to. No, they come complete with vials and needles. Imagine having no idea that there are real risks and getting the jab on your front porch. No medical evaluation by a doctor, no consultation of medical history or inherent risk factors. No, just an insistence that if you don't comply, you're an ignorant, horrible, dangerous person. And then a quick poke, the ramifications of which remain nebulous. They're also keeping a database of who refuses the vaccine. America's frontline doctors reported on a training document for Biden's door-to-door pushers. After you enter the building, orient yourself so you systematically proceed from floor to floor covering each wing. Utilize the tally sheet to keep count of those interested in getting the vaccine, those who refuse, and those with further questions. The document also advises participants to Report on your work! Be sure to fill out the door-knocking spreadsheet with the counts of who still needs a vaccine. This is important information that the health department is relying on. Why does the federal government need a database of people's personal medical decisions? What could they possibly do with that information? I mean, I can think of a few things, but none of them are appropriate use of government power. I want to get back to the vetting of this vaccine. Senator Ron Johnson posted a video of a mother addressing a committee with her daughter, a COVID vaccine trial volunteer, sitting next to her, in a wheelchair, on oxygen. This is what she said. All three of our kids volunteered and were excited to participate in the trial as it really helped us all return to normal blood. My husband works in the medical field and I have a degree in electrical engineering. We are pro-vaccine and pro-science, which is why we agreed to let Maddie and her two older brothers volunteer for the trial. She developed severe abdominal chest pain and the way she described the chest pain, and I quote, it feels like my heart is being ripped out through my neck. And eventually, she had to have an NG tube put in to get nutrition. All of these symptoms are still here today. Some of these are worse than others. Over the past five months, Maddie has been to the ER nine times and has been hospitalized three times for a total of two months in the hospital. When I want to ask them, Maddie, volunteer for the Pfizer trial. Why? Why aren't they researching how to figure out? Why did not Some other people don't have to go through this. Instead, they're just sitting as mental. All we want is for Maddie to be seen, heard, and believed, because she is not them. And we want her to get the care she desperately needs so that she can go back to normal. Why is she not? She was totally fine before this. She did the right thing trying to help everybody else. Why aren't you researching her to figure out why this happened so other people don't have to go through this? 
Can you hear the heartbreak in that mother's voice? The interesting thing is, she's very level-headed about it. She doesn't vilify the drug companies or the clinical trials for what happened to her daughter. They know, probably knew going in, that it was possible something like this could happen. They were participating in a clinical trial. She's angry because the results were hushed up, because the data gained from her daughter's participation went unheeded, and now her daughter's suffering is in vain. She's angry that other people are suffering unnecessarily because what was learned from her daughter's experience, from her daughter's pain, was ignored and swept under the rug. And that failure is now hurting others as well. Lest you think this is a fluke, OpenVares.com has tallied 11,140 reports of death among people who received a COVID-19 vaccine. Okay, well, I mean, almost 170 million people in the U.S. have had at least one dose of the stuff, so maybe 11,000 or so deaths doesn't seem that bad. So let's put it into perspective. Tucker Carlson reported, Every flu season, we give influenza shots to more than 160 million Americans. Every year, a relatively small number of people seem to die after getting these shots. To be precise, in 2019, that number was 203 people. The year before, it was 119. In 2017, a total of 85 people died from the flu shot. 203, 119, 85. 11,140. How about a little more perspective? As of July 15, 2021, the VAERS system reported 426,328 adverse reactions, or 37.93% of all adverse reactions reported from all vaccines. The next closest competitor was the Zoster vaccine for shingles at 7.5%. Nearly a half a million adverse reactions seems like an important detail that I'm pretty sure the nice people knocking on your door aren't talking to you about. Due diligence has not been done on this vaccine. According to America's Frontline Doctors, results of the vaccine trials were reported with less than 200 people. One trial started with about 43,000, but only 170 people were analyzed to draw the conclusion that the vaccine was effective. Another manufacturer started with 30,000 participants. Effectiveness was calculated from the results of less than 200 individuals. I want to go back to the Timothy O'Brien article that I brought up previously. Speed is prized in the race to beat back COVID-19, as it should be. The world is also fortunate to have innovative and dedicated public and private researchers able to produce coronavirus vaccine candidates in record time. But the WHO's thumbs down on remdesivir is also a reminder that hasty drug development and approval is risky. It highlights why the FDA has to do more than merely rubber stamp COVID-19 treatments in the face of heavy White House pressure to move quickly. Two writers for Science Magazine, John Cohen and Kai Kofferschmidt, offered some answers to these mysteries in a deeply reported piece published late last month. They found that the FDA and the European Union both had approved the use of remdesivir despite some glaring procedural gaps. The FDA didn't consult the outside experts it keeps on tap to analyze approvals for complex antiviral drugs. The EU approved remdesivir's pricing just a week before lackluster results from a major WHO trial of the drug were published, and then seemed clueless about the new data. Gilead was aware it had donated drug to the trial and knew the results were poor. 
Perhaps it was just fine that the FDA relied on what was essentially an in-house trial to approve remdesivir. In case any of this isn't fine, we should bear it in mind as HHS and the FDA continue to play pivotal roles overseeing the approval, rollout, and regulation of more crucial drugs, the COVID-19 vaccines that Pfizer Inc. and Moderna Inc. have put on the table. And he's right. It doesn't matter who was or is in the White House. These things need to be thoroughly tested before they're released. We all hate the fact that Microsoft makes the consumer the guinea pig each time they roll out a new OS. Now the same standard is being applied to our bodies. The worst part is, despite the rushed production and limited testing, despite skipping animal trials and only employing small, short-duration trials in humans, they knew there were serious problems. Let's go back to the Dark Horse podcast episode I brought up earlier with Dr. Brett Weinstein, Dr. Robert Malone, the inventor of the mRNA technology, and Steve Kirsch. The other problem, and this is your area of expertise, is that what, the, what these vaccines do is they encode spike protein alone so that the immune system will learn to recognize spike protein and will catch it quickly when one is confronted with COVID. But the spike protein itself, we now know, is very dangerous. It's cytotoxic. I'm going to break in here for just a second. Cytotoxic means toxic to cells. He's suggesting that the spike proteins themselves, even without the coronavirus, are toxic. Back to it. Is that a fair description? More than fair, and I alerted the FDA about this risk um, months and months and months ago. And so we had a discussion about and, it. And to be fair, the FDA did not think that um, the S1 uh, subunit and the spike protein was toxic. And so they knew... The FDA knew about the biodistribution, and and one of the scary things is that the biodistribution like peaks in your ovaries, and so so just to to nail the point home, it, um, they did know, they did okay. know. I did send them the manuscripts, so and and their determination was it's a that, harmless spike protein that they didn't think that that was sufficient documentation of the risk that spike was biologically active right okay. they so, did not believe the spike was biologically active so that was the big mistake we now know the spike protein is, is very dangerous very dangerous is biologically we also let me put that in some context your typical vaccine is inactive it's made up of dead or severely weakened virus or a substitute for the virus that is intended to instigate the body's natural defenses Essentially, it's matter that trains the body to fight a specific virus. But it's inactive. It doesn't directly impact other body systems. The flu shot shouldn't be damaging vascular lining, or the heart, or crossing the blood-brain barrier, all of which these vaccines have been accused of doing. When Dr. Malone says it's biologically active, what he's suggesting is that the spike proteins from the vaccination itself are interacting with the body in unintended and damaging ways. They were, they were aware that there was a risk of a spike being biologically active and having adverse events if it did not stay stuck to the cells that were transfected that got the RNA and made it. Okay? And, and they used a genetic engineering method of putting a transmembrane domain on it to ensure that it stayed anchored and stayed put. And there, they did limited non-clinical studies to say, looks like it stays stuck. Right. We engineered it to stay stuck. They did. And, and uh, they published that. Here's right. the thing. Special engineered. 
okay, is that um, that's generally not good enough in a non-clinical data package. So before we get a product released to use in humans, in the normal situation where we're not in a rush, we have some really rigorous tests that have to be done in animals. And um, revealing that spike gets cleaved off of expressed cells and becomes free is something that absolutely should have been known and understood well before this ever gotten put into humans. So I'll just leave it at that. I can see why tech was quick to jump on this information. Again, I'm not advocating for or against any of this, really. The point of this show is to introduce the parts of the conversation that have been forcibly silenced. How are we supposed to make informed decisions if one side of the conversation is able to so completely muzzle the other? Back to it. And by the way, we have no problems at all with mRNA vaccines. Right. It's just this particular vaccine, because of the spike protein and because it breaks, it cleaves off the cell and it goes throughout your body and your brain, your heart, and anywhere that you can have these symptoms that are so varied, whether it's a 16-year-old who can't talk or see 48 hours after injection, or, or someone who's, you know, handshakes, or someone who's, um, you know, my carpet cleaner, uh, uh, Tim, he's like disabled now. He's lost $30,000 in terms of the, his costs, and he's going in for an epidural because he's in such pain. And so these and these well, side effects, the, the, the victims of this, of, of this vaccine, they're not being able to tell their story at the press because, you know, Tim says, I, I try to tell my story and the press ignores him. The entire premise used to argue the safety of these vaccines is that the spike proteins in the vaccine have been modified to behave differently than the virus spikes. As Dr. Malone puts it, the vaccine spikes are meant to stay stuck to the intended cells and not break free to travel throughout the body. Dr. Malone is asserting that the spike proteins are not doing what they were intended to do, and that the testing, to demonstrate they behave as intended, was woefully inadequate and far below industry standards. The Salk Institute released an article chronicling the effects the spike protein itself has, isolating its effects from that of the virus it's attached to. They preface the article by saying that the spike proteins from the virus that they're discussing behave differently than the engineered spike proteins in the vaccine. You know, the ones that are supposed to stay put, but it appears are not behaving as intended. So if the spike proteins themselves have a direct effect, are biologically active, as Dr. Malone put it, what do these spike proteins do? From the Salk Institute. In the new study, the researchers created a pseudovirus that was surrounded by SARS-CoV-2 classic crown of spike proteins, but did not contain any actual virus. Exposure to this pseudovirus resulted in damage to the lungs and arteries of an animal model, proving that the spike protein alone was enough to cause disease. Tissue samples showed inflammation in endothelial cells lining the pulmonary artery walls. The team then replicated the process in the lab, exposing healthy endothelial cells, which line arteries, to the spike protein. They showed that the spike protein damaged the cells by binding ACE2. This binding disrupts ACE2's molecular signaling to mitochondria, organelles that generate energy for cells, causing the mitochondria to become damaged and fragmented. If you remove the replicating capabilities of the virus, it still has a major damaging effect on the vascular cells, 
simply by virtue of its ability to bind to this ACE2 receptor, the S-protein receptor, now famous thanks to COVID. This isn't supposed to happen with the vaccine spike proteins. They're supposed to anchor themselves where they're intended to be and stay there. But as Dr. Malone pointed out, there's evidence they're not doing what they're supposed to, and inadequate testing was done before the general populace became the test. In another podcast, Dr. Weinstein expanded on this. Well, let's just say um, a couple things are going on. One, that the idea of the protein having an anchor that will keep it in the cell surface is the idealized version of what's going to go on. So kudos for designing it in this way. And let me put that in the context uh, of how the the vaccine should, should work under circumstances where everything goes as planned. So let's take the mRNA Uh, vaccine, one of them. You've got this lipid nanoparticle coat. It's covering an mRNA. It gets into the uh, body through injection. It encounters some cells for reasons that I think are still a bit murky. It gets taken up. That could be as simple as the nanoparticle uh, coat having an affinity for the membrane of cells that causes it to be taken up. Big asterisk there. Which cells take it up Why do they take it up? How different is it? How many cells take it up in one patient versus another? These are all big questions. Maybe somebody knows the answer, but it's not easy to find even for somebody who knows that they're looking for it. Um, So you've got the mRNA gets dumped into a cell. The cell, because all cells in the body uh, make proteins from mRNA messages that are usually coming from the nucleus of the cell, just simply translates this thing automatically. And the nature of the protein that gets translated has this anchor bit in it that if all goes according to plan, results in it sticking off the surface of the cell, pointing out, at which point the hope is it will be encountered by uh, antigen-presenting cells, which will detect this cell, will effectively take it up and then present it to a bunch of naive T-cells those of which those that fraction, that tiny fraction of the T cells that it encounters will react to it because they are uh, wired in such a way that they have an affinity, a low affinity at that point, they will be triggered to diversify then and selection will create an uh, ever better affinity for that spike protein. The, the short version of that being the hope is these cells with the spike protein having been produced um, that are on the surface of them will be recognized by our immune system and thus we will be able, our adaptive immunity will go into effect and um, produce a response such that should we, should the person who is thus vaccinated encounter wild type SARS-CoV-2, um, their immune system will then be primed and ready. Did you notice how many uncertainties there were in that? Did you notice how much information a man who spent his career in research couldn't find data to confirm? Did you notice how much of that process relied on assuming everything would go to plan, without publicly available research data to confirm it? He described what the literature says should happen, literature he was largely unable to confirm with actual research data. I think we learned a while ago that just trust the experts isn't a viable strategy especially with so much of politics riding on it. Clearly, there are dissenting opinions from very qualified people. The inventor of the mRNA technology, for starters. And then there's the question of whether or not the vaccine actually protects against infection and transmission. Dr. Fauci himself broke one of the YouTube community standards. 
claims that COVID-19 vaccines do not reduce risk of contracting COVID-19. Uh-oh, Dr. Fauci. From CBS Boston. During a Yahoo Finance Summit this week, Dr. Anthony Fauci said that the first COVID-19 vaccines will aim to reduce symptoms, but not necessarily prevent infection. Dr. Malika Marshall joins us now. And doctor, I think we all thought, at least I did, that a new vaccine would keep us from getting infected in the first place. Well, David, of course, that is the ultimate goal. But infectious disease specialists like Dr. Fauci say they'll be pretty pleased if a new vaccine can prevent what they call clinically recognizable disease. What does that mean? So it means you get infected, but you either develop no or minimal symptoms and you don't get seriously ill. That sounds more like NyQuil or Sudafed than an actual vaccine. Maybe the vaccine does reduce the risk of contracting and transmitting COVID. Maybe it doesn't. The point is, they're mandating a narrative that has yet to be empirically demonstrated and silencing dissenting ideas, including from qualified people. You know what? Let's simplify that. They're mandating a narrative. That alone should be enough to turn the American people against them. Here's a crack in that narrative. From the Daily Mail. Vaccinated people now make up almost 47% of all new COVID cases. From the Associated Press, Yankees-Red Sox game postponed after three New York pitchers test COVID positive. The Yankees' post-All-Star break opener against the Boston Red Sox on Thursday night was postponed because of positive COVID-19 tests among vaccinated New York pitchers. And from NBC News, in a section I would have titled, Karma Strikes Again! Two more Texas Democrats who fled to Washington in an attempt to block passage of Republican-sponsored voter restrictions I think they meant to say voter integrity laws have tested positive for COVID-19, the state House Democratic Caucus said Sunday. And then the cherry on top. From the Gateway Pundit. For second week in a row, more COVID-19 vaccination deaths than COVID-19 deaths in the U.S., according to CDC and VAERS websites. Well, that seems like an important consideration. So, we all hid inside for months, destroyed our economy, set the development of a generation of children back academically, socially, and emotionally, printed a third of our money supply in a year, incentivized living off the government over getting back to work and being productive. It appears we've pushed ourselves to the brink of hyperinflation, with too many newly printed dollars chasing too little production. All for a virus that according to the American Council on Science and Health, has a survival rate above 99% for almost everyone. For 17 years and under, it's 99.997%. For 25 to 29 years old, it's 99.987%. You stay above 99.9% survival rate until 45 years old. You stay above 99% until 65 years old. And you stay above 96% until 80. And these statistics are lumping the numbers together for people who live healthy lifestyles and people who are obese and or have other lifestyle-related comorbidities. People with unhealthy lifestyles are dragging down the stats for everyone else. Separate those two groups, and the healthy numbers get even better. I'm not saying we should have done nothing, but come on. How can anyone argue that the response was proportional to the disease? When you look at what the left used the COVID response to accomplish, How can anyone argue that the response was even about the disease? This is all information important to making an informed decision about your life and your health.
But if you, how did YouTube put it? Claim that an approved COVID-19 vaccine will cause death, infertility, miscarriage, autism, or contraction of other infectious diseases, you get nuked online. Well, I guess the Vaccine Adverse Effects Reporting System is in violation of YouTube's community guidelines. They reported over 11,000 deaths. How about miscarriages? The New England Journal of Medicine published a study called Preliminary Findings of mRNA COVID-19 Vaccine Safety in Pregnant Persons. The official conclusion of the study is that the jab is perfectly safe for pregnancy, and there's nothing to see here. There's just one hiccup. If you go to the Supplementary Appendix and click here for additional data file, you get the Supplementary Appendix file. All the way down at the bottom of that file is a table, Table S4, in which you find the total number of pregnant women involved in the study, 163. At the bottom of Table S4, you find a very inconvenient section, Pregnancy or Neonatal-Specific Conditions. Let me read you that table. Miscarriage, 46. Wait, 46? 46 miscarriages out of 163 pregnancies in the study? That's a 28% miscarriage rate. That is, to use the academic vernacular, statistically significant. But that's not the whole section. Miscarriage is 46. Total infant mortality is 50. And the section total, including pregnancy complications, is 66. 66 out of 163. 40%. The study had a 40% adverse effect rate on pregnancy. It had a 30% infant mortality rate. Again, definitely statistically significant. So, what is this, YouTube, about censoring pregnancy concerns? Now, I can't speak to the infertility part of the community guidelines. Community guidelines. That's so cute. They really should just call it things we'll nuke your channel for. I can't speak to the infertility part of the community guidelines, which may be why people like Jen Psaki like to focus on that metric when they cite proliferation of misinformation. There hasn't been enough time to assess infertility effects one way or the other. Then again, the virus wasn't transmissible human to human until it was. They claimed masks weren't effective against COVID until they claimed they were. The virus certainly, definitely, unquestioningly did not come from a lab until recently. I'm going to stick with the jury still out on the infertility question. Menstrual disruption, however, is another story. From Hammond Merchant, subject leader in pharmacy, University of Huddersfield, United Kingdom. Many women across the world, after receiving COVID vaccines, are complaining of irregularities in their menstrual bleeding. Some experiencing heavy menstrual bleeding, some bleeding before their periods were due, or bleeding frequently, whereas some are complaining of postmenopausal bleeding. As of April 5, 2021, there have been 958 cases of post-vaccination menstruation irregularities, including vaginal hemorrhages, that were recorded in MHRA's adverse event reports. It is anticipated that the actual number of cases are much higher than the numbers recorded in the pharmacovigilance systems, as many women in different cultural contexts may have felt uncomfortable to talk about it, may not have thought it was vaccine-related, or may have not been encouraged by their clinicians to make an official report into the adverse events reporting system. There have been recent reports of hemorrhage, blood clots, and thrombocytopenia, extremely low platelet count, following administration of COVID-19 vaccines, 
that have raised concerns over the safety of genetic vaccines for people with pre-existing coagulation disorders or those on certain medications. Do you think the people going door-to-door trying to help Biden reach his vaccine administration goal know if they're talking to someone with a pre-existing condition? I'm going to guess no. Back to the article. Regulatory bodies have also issued warnings to patients and healthcare professionals to be vigilant and seek prompt medical assistance if they experience typical symptoms of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, a potentially fatal clot in the brain. European Medicines Agency has also revised the summary of product characteristics and listed thrombocytopenia, very low platelets, as a common side effect, i.e. 1 in 100 to 1 in 10, of Vaxevria, i.e. the COVID vaccine AstraZeneca. The pharmacovigilance data also suggests that thrombocytopenia, very low platelets, is also a frequent observation following mRNA COVID vaccines, such as Pfizer or Moderna. And then there's this, from WBRC. Catherine Lee, a biological anthropologist, noticed changes in her menstrual cycle not long after getting her COVID-19 vaccine. I reached out to some of my friends who are also vaccinated to see if they noticed anything, explained Lee, because it wasn't listed as a potential side effect or anything like that. One of those friends was Kate Clancy. She got her vaccine about a month after I got mine, made that tweet and it took off, with tons of people saying, yes, I noticed this, or I thought it was only me, or all kinds of responses. It still gets responses today, said Lee. The viral response was just the beginning for these friends, who are both biological anthropologists. We started talking back and forth as that tweet was taking off, and that day I drew up the initial survey and went through some rounds of revisions and got it submitted for ethics approval pretty soon after, explained Lee, postdoctoral research scholar, Washington University School of Medicine, Division of Public Health Sciences. When we were going through ethics approval, Katie and I had a discussion about how many people we anticipated would participate, and the number we put in was 500. And that was being optimistic, said Kate Clancy, PhD, Director of Graduate Studies, Associate Professor of Anthropology, University of Illinois. We hit 500, I think, in the first couple of hours. And in fact, we were in the thousands within 24 hours. Their research survey launched a few weeks ago and has nearly 130,000 replies from women sharing their menstrual experiences after vaccination. Clancy and Lee will use the data collected to better understand possible relationships between bleeding patterns and COVID-19 vaccine administration. Again, there's not enough data to draw specific conclusions yet. But that's the point. There's not enough data. The narrative that you're not allowed to question is that Everything is fine. There's nothing to see here. Get the jab or you're killing your fellow Americans. You're not a murderer, are you? We don't yet know enough about what this vaccine is doing to people to judge one way or the other. But that's the point. The idea that we're not allowed to question the establishment narrative is ludicrous and insidious. What happens? What's the real-world effect of censoring wrong think on the vaccine? Let's go back to the Dark Horse podcast for that. And I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that we have to have free and open discussion and we have to have full disclosure of risks. And when you censor that, you cannot have that. It, change, yeah, it changes everybody's mindset into believing it's safe and, effect, and, and effective. And when you have that, you don't report these adverse events as being associated so with that's, it because you right. eliminate that's, that's it. You don't the, want to be the fly in the ointment well, of no, a great you, vaccine. No, you don't think yeah. it's possible, right? right? So when a doctor sees uh, a miscarriage, 
and says, I've never seen a, a baby like this in my entire career where it's so bloody and the brain is split in half and so forth. She's never seen anything like it. And she, and, and the woman was vaccinated a month ago and she's 25 weeks pregnant. When you have that sort of thing, the doctor says, well, it can't be the vaccine because the vaccine is safe. Wow. And so they, they say, well, it must be a genetic defect. And they report it as a genetic defect, and they don't even report it into the VARA system. So we never see any of these safety signals because everybody is trained to think that it's safe. It couldn't have been yeah. the vaccine. So that's, that's this groupthink problem. So and, I, and I think we, it is a real problem. Are the adverse reactions we've discussed anecdotal? Well, one, the numbers are getting to be a bit overwhelming. So I'm going to suggest no. But two, Censoring dissenting voices stops you from finding out. Here's what they're going to say. So, and, and I, I want to work out how this functions, right? I can take your story. Hey, I, Steve, talked to a couple people who came through my house in various capacities and heard an alarmingly large number of stories that were very frightening. Now, everybody at this table will agree that could be anecdotal. It's totally it's anecdotal. It's not even anecdotal. It could be the result of sampling error. It might. Oh, absolutely. Right? And so the point is, absolutely. How do you detect if something like that isn't sampling error? You find out what other people are saying. Yes. If we can't have these conversations, if it can't even be discussed without the White House and big tech overlords collaborating to nuke any mention of these topics, how are we supposed to find out what's known now? And more importantly, when new information comes out. If it did turn out that the mRNA vaccines caused sterility or any other seriously harmful effects, how would we know if any mention of these topics gets insta-banned? The censorship is effective. I've cited a study on here before that demonstrated that the censoring of the Hunter Biden laptop story swung the election. We have to be able to have these conversations. We have to be able to freely share ideas and information, regardless what the elites think of those ideas or that information. Is the vaccine safe? In my opinion, no. In my opinion, it was not tested adequately, skipping steps and sweeping inconvenient data under the rug. And since it's been released, there have been far, far too many complications for my comfort. The biggest clue that something was off, though, was the executive branch's media blitz, all too reminiscent of the weapons of mass destruction media blitz of yesteryear. When a narrative is pushed this hard, that, again, in my opinion, is a klaxon-level warning sign. Dr. Weinstein had some words of wisdom in another episode of the Dark Horse podcast that I think we should consider. We, the science-technology complex, okay. are triggering human cells in an uninfected person to display an antigen as if it was infected. Then the antigen-presenting cells take over doing their normal job, collect that antigen, display it to cells that are capable of learning the formula and responding, and the whole thing unfolds in this way. The problem with this story, as deployed in that blog post, is that it assumes that everything works as we hope it will. And there's actually very little chance that that's right, because what we are doing is completely novel with respect to the body, right? We are taking a, a pseudo-virus, right, a, a, a lipid nanoparticle coat around an mRNA. We are infecting a cell with an mRNA that encodes this one protein, hoping to get it displayed on the surface. But none of this says that that's what happens. It certainly is happening enough that these vac vaccines do create immunity. That is clear. But it does not 
tell you how much of the spike protein is actually going through this process in the way the textbooks suggest and how much of it is ending up somewhere else. So for example, so basically what I see in this blog post and all of the analyses that point in this direction is a cherry picking of the information. Here are all the reasons that this is probably safe. And here are none of the reasons that it probably isn't, right? And the point is, you've got a collection of both reasons. Knowledge is power. With knowledge, you can make informed decisions, avoid dangers, and make critical life choices. That's what freedom of speech and of the press is all about. So I say, damn the censors. Have these conversations. Seek out as much information on these subjects as you can and weigh them responsibly. As for your principles, stand firm in your convictions. Don't be dissuaded or pushed from what you know is right. Know what your principles are, and don't abandon them. Fortune favors the bold. Before I go, if you want to support the show, you can go to www.intothefraypodcast.com, and on the right-hand column, you'll find a section called Support the Show. You can follow the show on Twitter, at Real Into the Fray. The most influential thing you can do right now, though, is share the show on social media. Like I've said before, your collective reach is orders of magnitude greater than mine alone. Join us next time for all the dirty election fraud details the White House and Big Tech are trying so hard to hide. Till then, be informed, stay safe, don't do anything stupid. 